December 1941, the California coast. The Japanese had just bombed Pearl Harbor. The nation's heroes were on the alert. Look, you guys, a Jap sub! The dummy's right. California could be next. This is war. Oh, God. A country's honor was at stake. <laughs> the lives of millions would be protected by a brave few. This is their story. Excuse us, ma'am. From the director of Jaws and Close Encounters of the Third Kind. The most explosive comedy spectacular ever filmed. What the hell do you people think you're doing? <laughs> Dan Aykroyd, Ned Beatty, John Belushi, Lorraine Garrett, Murray Hammond, Mr. Belie, Tim Matheson, Toshiro Mifune, Warren Oates, Robert Stack, Treat Williams. I can assure you, there will be no bombs dropped here. Universal Pictures and Columbia Pictures present an 18 production of a Steven Spielberg film. Ah! 1941. Sayonara, sucker! <laughs> Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Dan Aykroyd Podcast. I am your host, Scott White, and we are doing our second ever redid overdue or overdue redid, where we're redoing a podcast that I've already done. I'm doing 1941, which was actually my very, very first podcast, and it's terrible. I hooked up a microphone, and I didn't switch settings, so I I used the wrong microphone after went and buying a microphone. It's just it's the very first one, so if you want to see just how bad a podcast can be, go back and revisit my very first one, but I'm back. We're, I'm doing it again. I'm doing it with my good friend, Miss, Mr. Tim Howard. Hello. So this is a weird a, a weird thing that's happening is this is my third war picture or project with Dan Aykroyd because I just released Spies Like Us. I saw that. And I recorded an episode of Dan Aykroyd was on an episode of Tales from the Crypt with Kirk Douglas in huh. an episode that, that was set in World War One. And now I'm doing 1941 set in World War Two. So it's sort okay. of a weird, I didn't know, that was not planned, that's just how it happened. You know, it's just kind of, uh, there's kind of this war fever going on. Well, that is true. Also a little weird connection, 1941 was directed by Steven Spielberg and co-written by Robert Zemeckis. The episode of Tales from the Crypt, which I did, was directed by Robert Zemeckis and was supposed to be directed by Steven Spielberg, but he couldn't do it. So he suggested that Robert Zemeckis did it. So there's another connection between the two Dan Aykroyd war podcasts. Yeah, that's what's amazing. I, I don't know how to start, but you know, when you look at all the names involved with the movie 1941, Zemeckis, Spielberg, and, and, and the on-screen presence, something that just occurred to me is that, yeah, so much talent, and yet it is so completely and utterly devoid of 
anything that is remotely redeemable. That I did think of a parallel to this. That you think, oh, wow, you know, the Rolling Stones were pretty great and the Beatles were pretty great. Wouldn't it be great if the Rolling Stones and the Beatles got together and put out an album? Well, you know what? They did not put out an album, but they did sing together on this song called We Love You. And it's terrible. <laughs> It is the 1941 version of any Stones and Beatles song you can think of. You know, it's like you would think, that, yeah, we're going to have Mick Jagger and Keith Richards and John Lennon and Paul McCartney. They're all going to get together and they're going to write a song and then they're going to release it as both a Beatles song and a Rolling Stones song. And it's horrible. It sucks. And, and, and so uh, when uh, John Lennon was killed... I actually called one of the local DJs and told him about it because he'd never heard of this. And then uh, they played it on the radio and they were like, wow, we did not know this song even existed. Yeah, that's right. The Rolling Stones and the Beatles did a song together and it was so bad that Rolling Stones and Beatles fans have never heard of it. I've never heard of it either. So. You'll have to, you know, maybe edit it in or play it at some point. I'm pretty sure you'll agree with me because we have very similar musical tastes. It's pretty bad. You and I, we did an episode on the movie Sneakers, which was a fantastic ensemble cast with a lot of great actors, and yes. it it worked. It was a good yes. movie. It was a fun movie. It was an enjoyable movie. This is the total opposite of that. And here's the thing. Our other one we did was Neighbors. Yes. And this movie makes Neighbors look like Citizen Kane, with at least with Neighbors, okay? You kept waiting for something interesting to happen. Not a whole lot of really interesting stuff happens. It kind of ends in a slight anticlimax, and that's about it. You know, I was like, well, it, it wasn't great. It was pretty bad. But it wasn't irredeemably horrible like 1941 uh you know so i i would definitely say of the three movies that we've talked about together this is far and away uh the worst one and and something we can come back to and circle back to at some point there are movies that can be so terrible that they're still fun to watch just because they're so awful 
1941 isn't one of them. No, there's good, bad, and there's bad, bad, and this is bad, bad. Right. The example I wanted to give is uh, well, my personal favorite of movies that were considered bad by almost everybody, but I still really liked it was like Land of the Lost with Will Ferrell. I still thought I've seen it several times. It still makes me laugh. But when my daughter watched it with me and we watched the director's cut, which so did I, and so did you. And, and what amazes me is that somebody actually looked at 1941 and said, you know what we need? We need a longer version of this movie. We need a half hour more. The Snyder cut of uh, the Justice League movie or whatever that was, was way better than the original cut, okay? It's almost a, a completely different movie, at least it is in the second half. But this one was like, whoever thought of this, hey, here's an idea. Let's take the worst movie in a, a total embarrassment. It's amazing to me that Spielberg and Zemeckis were still able to get work after this. Or maybe they were so busy working on other stuff that this fell through the wayside. I, I don't know. That's that's the other part of it is that, you know, we talked about how you could fix things with neighbors and make it a little more interesting, go more like the book. But there's like nothing here. I mean, you can't take this down to the studs and rebuild it. You've got to just burn it to the ground. You know, there's there's nothing here redeemable about the script or the acting or the directing uh, or cinematography. <laughs> but it was nominated for an Academy Award for a Best Sound Editing, I think it was. Well, and also John Williams. John Williams did the music. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, you know, another. Yeah, John John Williams. You know, right off of the the theme to Superman and everything comes in here. And this, what was the year? Was it 1979 or was it yes. 1980? 1979. Right. It, it came out about the same time as uh, All That Jazz and approximately a, cu a couple months or so. And uh, Kramer versus Kramer. And I remember seeing both of those in the, in the theaters. I did not see 1941 uh, when it came out. I heard such terrible, terrible things about it. And, you know, who's going to want to drop $3 to go see a movie that sucks, you know? Contrary to popular belief, this was not a flop. The movie cost $30 million to make, and it made $90 million. Yeah, so it, made it a came profit. out ahead. That, that was one of the most amazing things to me about it, is that it actually made money. The people, instead of taking the people who produced, directed, and starred in this and lining them up against a wall and shooting them, they actually made money. They, they had a pretty good return on their investment. I mean, three to one's okay in Hollywood. It's not fantastic. But, yeah, it wasn't like Heaven's Gate. Which was right around – yeah, that was 1980, so that was right around the same time as well. Yeah, it was um, probably being filmed at about the same time this was being filmed. The brunt of the criticism fell on Belushi. And I don't understand why. And this was really pushed. If you look at all the promotional posters and all the promotional material of the time, right. it's, it's John Belushi front and center. And he is hardly in the movie. 
I remember Cisco and Ebert reviewing the movie and specifically talking about how it was advertised as a John Belushi vehicle just on the heels of Animal House. And one of my favorite actors, Tim Matheson, is in it. And he's trying to get laid just like in Animal yeah. House. Belushi and Tim Matheson are basically playing Bluto and Otter from yes, Animal House. Yes, they are. But, but time transport them back to 1941 and, you know, put them in December, j- just Christmas of 1941, just after uh, Pearl Harbor. We have Belushi and Matheson. There's a lot of weird connect. We have Bluthi- Belushi and Matheson from Animal House. Uh, right. Then we had Penny Marshall and uh, uh, Lenny and Squeaky. What is it? Kev- um, God damn. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We, uh, God, I, Michael McKeon and and David Landro or Landro. We had so they, right, so, right. So we had Lenny and Squiggy and Laverne from Laverne and Shirley. We right. had John Candy and Joe Flaherty from SCTV. We had yes. John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd from Saturday Night Live. There was just a whole bunch of connections. John Landis is in this movie. He plays one of the soldiers. He, he has he has a cameo in here. Uh, Lauren Gray and Murray Hamilton from Jaws. They're in this movie. There's no protagonist in this movie. Plus, They're, plus, uh, I was going to say too, the guy who was, I forgot what his role was on Heart to Heart. Uh, he was a character actor in a lots and lots of stuff, but that was yeah. what I remembered him from. But anyway, yeah, the you should try to figure out okay to set the scene or try to set the scene for for the very fortunate people that have never seen this. It starts out with these two guys, like, cooking in a diner kind of a thing. No, no, it starts off with a Jaws parody. Oh, that's right. That's right. The, the naked woman is swimming out in the ocean, and the Japanese submarine rises up out of the ocean, and she's stuck on the periscope. Yeah, and I will give Spielberg credit for this. He had he had a big enough sense of humor that he could parody his own movie, right? Because it uses the same John Williams movie uh, music. You get the same Jaws music, and Christopher Lee is on a Japanese sub playing a yeah. German, and the head Japanese guy whose name I can't remember. He was a very big star in Japan. He was one of Spielberg's heroes. That's why he's in this movie. I thought this was slightly funny too. He's speaking Japanese, and Christopher Lee is speaking German. And it's all in subtitles, but they can understand each other. Yeah, they're, they're talking they're, to each other as if they they can speak German. The Japanese can speak German, and the German can speak Japanese. There's no interpreter there or anything. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I will say, so you're right, it starts with the Jaws parody, and she's stuck on the periscope, and the Japanese guy sees her on the periscope and, like, smiles, and that's about it. It doesn't really lead to anything. So the gist is, the Japanese sub wants to bomb Hollywood. For some reason, now, now you could start, you do something with this, for some reason, these guys kind of missed out on Pearl Harbor. Uh, and so... Because you're just talking just a couple weeks after Pearl Harbor's Christmas, you know. And so they needed to do something honorable. They needed to blow something up. And they come across this idea of blowing up Hollywood, even though Hollywood's not actually on the coast itself, which 
nonetheless is not a deterrent. It does lead to the the one thing that made me laugh. There's two funny moments in this movie. The, the first one does involve the Japanese submarine where their communications is just, for some reason, isn't working. And so they steal a radio from somebody's house and they're trying to get this radio. And of course, it's like a 1941 giant radio. They're trying to get into the submarine hatch and it won't fit. And one of the guys just makes a side remark uh, talking about the radio saying, you know, we need to learn how to make these things smaller, which in 1979 would probably be seen as hilarious because back in the 70s, the Japanese were known for miniaturizing things. Right, Cars, electronics, you know, the whole bit that it was the Japanese that were initially credited with making everything smaller. So that joke would uh, just, I think, totally go over the head of uh, millennials. Not to put millennials down. I'm just saying you weren't there. Trust me. (laughs) Miniaturization. So that, that struck me as funny and would strike virtually nobody else as funny. Uh, I don't think the other moment comes towards the end when there's a rush of a crowd and these two people are going after each other. Well, uh, Treat Williams is basically trying to run down and rape the the uh, female lead or one of the two female leads, which, by the way, look like they could just about be twins. That you could tell that Spielberg was kind of into the blonde, curly-haired woman because it's about this time that, well, later, later, later on he meets Kate Capshaw and divorces his first wife. But these are both, to me, Kate Capshaw lookalikes. And anyway, Treat Williams is trying to rape this girl, uh, and they keep falling apart. I can't even describe the scene where the crowd rushes and parts ways for a second, then they see each other, and then they part ways, and somebody who's chasing Treat Williams is seen in the crowd, but... I can't explain it. It's a purely visual thing. But anyway, making the radio smaller was funny. And then we, so then we go to this diner and this is the first time we see Dan Aykroyd and John Candy and Treat Williams. They're all part of this. And right off the bat, we get Dan Aykroyd doing his quick speak. This war has been going on for the last 10 years. You had your Japs in Manchuria in 1931, the Aikais in Ethiopia in 1935, and the Krupps have been blitzkrieging your favorite European tourist attractions for the last three years. The last year in Africa took General O'Connor and his British tanks two months to grab Libya, and it took Rommel 12 days to get it back. He can just rattle off mechanical terms or... Yeah, he's doing his Joe Friday. With, like, military military precise information. Language, precise language. Precise information in a short period of time. Treat Williams... The character he plays in this movie might be one of the most despicable characters yes. in all of movie. For some right. reason, he doesn't like eggs. It's never explained. It's never, we don't know why, but he hates eggs. Treat Williams is a psychopath. He's a, he's a psychopathic rapist in this movie. Yes, That's he is. all that he is. Yes, and he, he is. And if you watch the movie, he has this move where he he goes into psycho mode, but he'll take his hand and he'll move it in front of his face and he'll smile. It's sort of like a Jekyll and Hyde. It's like, oh, okay, you know, he, he knows, okay, I'm I can't go psycho right now. I've got to go back into soldier yeah. mode, right? And 
but he, he's just a violent, psychopathic rapist who's an American soldier. Yeah, and, and, and the thing is, that's not exactly the kind of character to try to center a comedy around. Yet you know, it's just like, hey, you know what's what will be really funny is we'll have Treat Williams and he'll be trying to run down to rape this gal through about 30 to 45 minutes of the movie once she like kind of turns him down kind of a thing that uh, and beats up her boyfriend and uh now here's the deal with that this is also how sick and unfunny it is right treat williams is trying to rape this woman and i just hate the fact that we've said rape like three dozen times already yeah i know we've already <laughs> mentioned it more than any of yeah. our other movies combined because it wasn't even a thing it but wasn't like a central comic premise like it is in this movie this is what they're trying to go for here is comedic rape. Pure yeah. and simple. That's what they're yeah, going for. In absolutely. This movie. Comedic rape. And not even the kind that's in trading places with the gorilla and the bad guy. No, it's, it's not gorilla rape. Yeah, uh, it's not gorilla <laughs> rape to a person who really, really deserves to be raped by a gorilla. So Treat Williams is trying to rape this woman and her best friend wants to get with Treat Williams. So she sees him trying to rape her best friend and she thinks, this is the man for me. Yeah. <laughs> no, don't rape her. No. Take me instead. Take me instead. Isn't that uh, Marty McFly's uh, sister, by the way? Yes. It is. It is. Uh, yeah, not the one who was trying to rape, but the one who wanted to be raped. Amy Jo Spencer. Spe Except you can't like rape the willing, so anyway. Yeah, she was. She was Marty McFly's sister in all the Back to the Futures movies. She was also a co-star on Bosom Buddies with Tom Hanks and, and Peter Scolari. That's where I, I watched religiously, by the I way. I love that show. We may have to do something on that later. Um, Ooh, okay. So the movie is it's centered around... A, it, well, it's not, okay, that was a wrong, it's not centered around anything, it's just tangents, where something has happened, it starts off in a diner, these two guys who are not enlisted in the army, they're dancing in the kitchen, one of them who is, I guess the protagonist, he gets egg on Treat Williams, and Treat Williams goes berserk, and and they they just leave the diner, Jesus, I don't even know, it's just so hard to follow yeah, this I, movie. And I, I want to apologize to people who haven't seen the movie, and here we are trying to describe it for you, because it's, there's really, you start at that point, I figure, okay, here's going to be the thing. The, these guys, the, the guy and his gal are Romeo and Juliet thing. This is going to be the love interest. They're going to have to overcome obstacles, and then in the end, end up together or they don't end up together because, you know, they're such incompetent boobs or some stuff like that. And then it doesn't really happen like that. No. What happened? Okay, so I believe the next scene is where we first see John Belushi. Right. And he's this drunk World War II fighter. And he's got, and I'm, I, I will say, he looks the part. He's got the leather jacket yes. on. He's got the leather hat on. Sure. He's smoking a cigar. And he lands his plane at a gas station. He's like, fill her up. And he walks yeah. in and starts grabbing Campbell's soup and sticking it in his jacket. 
his plane gets away. So he starts shoot. He starts chasing and shooting his plane. God, so it's and and all I can say is okay. The, yeah, I'm thank you for for because this is fr- much fresher on your mind than mine. Okay, I saw that scene where he parks his airplane to fill it up, and then he goes in and just starts grabbing stuff off the shelf and like puts it in his coat and stuff because you know of course he has a kitchen apparently. Uh, or a microwave oven before they're invented to heat up the soup, or I don't know. But the only reason I thought of that was that they put this scene in because it was funny when it was in Animal House and he was going through the lunch line and he was just taking all that food and putting it on his tray and eating it as he put it on the tray. And so they thought, okay, let's kind of recreate that scene. That's what I thought when I saw that. Is the only reason that even exists is because it was funny in Animal House, so let's do it here. I agree with you because later in the movie, there's a scene where John Belushi is flying and he starts scratching his balls. Right. And he, he finds a, a squeak toy yeah. under, under, under his balls. Right. And he refused to do that. He goes, I'm not scratching my balls. So that was an insert shot that they did afterwards. He was desperately trying to break away from the Bluto image, even that early in his career. Wow. So he's like, no, I'm not scratching my balls. Well, guess what? Then a stand-in's going to scratch his balls, and we're going to put it in the movie. Then yeah. we go to um, a military base, and now oh, we're... The plane takes off on him for some reason. Yeah, the plane takes off on him. Yeah. And if you go to IMDb, if you look at the cast, there's 96. And usually when you see 96, a bunch of those are like uncredited extras that have just put their name on IMDb just to be on it. Out of the 96 people, 50 of them are featured in this movie. This movie has so many characters. It is unreal. You cannot keep track of how many characters are in this movie. Not talking about extras, not talking about cameos. I'm talking about featured actors in this movie. It is unreal. They were introducing characters and out they you couldn't wore, keep track. You couldn't keep track. Yeah, and I got confused, you know, between the there's two again, like I said, there's two kind of like female leads who look very similar, that are built very similar. They're both blonde, curly haired, and, and the whole bit. And it was hard to keep them apart for me. And I was paying attention, you know, knowing that we were going to do this podcast at some point. Um, oh, man, I had a thought. It just left my head. Oh, well, God, go ahead. Um, so we're so we're at an army base. Oh, I'm sorry. Here it is. Here it okay, is. go ahead. All right. And I know I've made allusion to it in probably our other two podcasts. But I wonder if what they were trying to do was go for a mad, 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 mad world. I mean, because you got Jonathan Winters, you even have Jack Benny in a, in a walk-off role. What's her name? There's no business like show businesses who's an airplane. Ethel Merman. Ethel Merman, thank you. But I mean, There's quite a few stars from the late radio, early TV era, Phil Silvers, all these people are, that maybe that's what they were going for, is just a star-studded cast, and they spent 10 cents on the writing. Yeah, this movie is frustrating because you don't you don't know where it's going and it doesn't know where it's going. No, no, 
no, it's it just meanders and such. And and we talked about this a little bit before he got it, started the podcast. Slim Pickens is in there, and he really doesn't need to be. No, his it, it has absolutely nothing with moving the plot forward whatsoever. And they say that it's editing that actually makes or breaks movies. That's what they said about Star Wars. They yeah. said that George Lucas's directing had nothing to do with it. Go, Star Wars was all editing. What made that movie what it was? Right, and 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 I kept thinking of that when I was watching this, and I kept trying to think how could you edit it down to something that would actually work, and it it, it could. It, you might be able to get an hour's worth of usable yeah. material out of there. But let's talk about. Let's move away from the ongoing comic premise of Treat Williams spending half the movie trying to rape this woman. Yeah, let's move on to another rape. I was going to say, let's move on to the racism. Yes, okay, we'll get to the racism, but there's, but we'll get to that. Because okay, you want to do the other rape, we'll go to the, we'll do the other rape, and then we'll get racist. Yes, there's another comical rape scene where they're at, we're at an army base, and this is where we're introduced to Robert Stack, who is a general in the army, who does not believe the Japanese are attacking. He's incredibly blasé about this war. Robert Stack is, is like the one guy who's kind of keeping his head when everyone else around him is losing theirs. And so I figured that was going to be the premise, is that Robert Stack is going to save the day. No. No. Tim, uh, Tim Allen, I was going to say Tim Allen, Tim, I did say, Tim Matheson is Robert Stack's secretary or whatever. Right, adjutant or whatever it is. Adjutant. Here's an interesting fact. Both of them were in To Be or Not To Be. Robert Stack was in the Jack Benny version, and Tim Matheson was in the Mel Brooks version. They both play the same character in those movies. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> That's a deep dig. That's incredible deep dig. And Tim Matheson is is basically playing Otter, and he's trying to, you know, get with this uh, gal. Nancy Allen. Yeah, Nancy Allen. Oh, Nancy Allen. Uh, so cute. Fame, uh, most famous role, she was Peter Weller's partner in RoboCop. I think that's yep. she's what she's most known for. That's right. He gets her on a plane, and he gets her behind the wheel, and while she's daydreaming he pulls up her skirt and he opens her blouse and he's basically he he's fondling her when she's not fully aware right and then she realizes what's going on she's like you better get out of my way and he's like come on and she punches him in the face so once again this is more uh you know comedic sexual assault yeah, and, and, and the fact is that he eventually does get her up in the plane and that they don't die. <laughs> Completely disregard flying the plane at some point. Right. Like, I'm sure the plane will be fine, you know. We're only in the mountains off the uh, you know coast of California. I'm sure we won't run into anything here. That Tim Matheson is just so incredibly focused. On nailing this check, that he puts his life completely aside. Which is <laughs> odd because when we meet him, he's having sex with another woman. Yeah, so it's it's not like he's you. 
No, it's he's he's handsome and he's charming and he's yeah. always getting laid, but it yeah. always seems like, I, like this is the one, this is the woman for me. Yeah, and, um, and it's and it's not even the premise that well, yes, I'm with these other women, but this is the one I really want to marry or have a relationship with. It's like no, it was like it was another notch, you know. But this time it was like I, if I have to die, I to do it, I'm going to die. <laughs> Just. I, I, I just, and again, we, I think we already established in the previous thing or so, we're not the most woke guys in the world. We're not terrible either, but I, I mean, dear God, if you took, you know, to, you took somebody who's 20 years old and they watch this, they're going to wonder why people aren't in jail. <laughs> now let's get into the racism of the movie. All right. Finally, the racism. Yeah, go ahead. Yay! Go ahead. Three people in Hollywood that I've never heard any anybody say anything bad about, and I've said is Jack Benny, Ernest Borgnine, and John Candy. John Candy, right. from from everything I have said, was just a decent, hardworking guy. He loved his friends. He loved his family. They make him a raging racist in this movie, and it doesn't further the plot in any way. No. It's not like it there's like, a Klan rally that the Japanese accidentally bomb or some shit like that. Or he's in trouble and you know his black partner has to help him. Oh, well, maybe I should, you know, this man who I have been racist to this entire movie saved my life. Maybe I should rethink that. Maybe I should right. become a better person. None of that. He's just racist to be racist because a black soldier is transferred into his company. And the minute he gets there, he starts he's a he, well, yeah. well I, oh, I say, I say, I say, I say, son. And, <laughs> and he insults, he, he's Foghorn Leghorn and a Curly Howard from the Three Stooges. It's just. All right, you lovers. You quit getting all dolled up. We're not going to any dance. We've just been posted on combat readiness. Combat readiness. Oh, we got to play wet nurse to Lulaville tonight. Combat readiness, Sarge. This is Hollywood. Oh, it's Hollywood. Is it fully? Well, I guess I didn't tell you guys. Lana Turner's going to be coming by to keep us all company tonight. Where's Tatarski? That ghoul brick. If he went in, I'll ream his ass. Hey, Tatarski, you be Want that that buff right there by the door. I don't want none of them now Asian enemies sneaking up on me while I'm in here asleep. My name is Ogden Johnson Jones. Now I ain't gonna enjoy it here, but I got orders to say I'm supposed to be here. And orders is orders. Is anybody in here that don't like it? Race, give me a jar of that white stencil paint. Now now, Ogden. I know you're gonna like it here. Now there's a few rules you gotta abide by. For example, if you will notice down here, sir. You'll notice this white line, which is the Mason-Dixon line. Now, that is the north, and this is the south. Now, don't ever cross over there. Oh, no. Well, I'm from Tennessee, and I'm going home to visit my wife. Well, that's always nice, but this is Mississippi. Don't ever cross across there. Yeah, well, I want to pick magnolia flowers. Oh, oh, magnolias, you say? We'll never cross them with the Mexican border. You wouldn't dare cross the Mexican border. Well, oh, lie in a CCC to you. Ah, I lose. White flag, I surrender. Bye-bye. <laughs> Uh, yeah. It, it, oh my God. And and, and it, again, it, it's not. We can't. We're not sitting here saying it's racist because 
the black person was portrayed in way X or way Y or, you know, white Hollywood put him in a position, you know, where he only plays it. No, no, no. The characters are openly racist to this guy who absolutely doesn't have it coming, you know, and for no good reason. And, and yet we're still supposed to think of John Candy as one of the good guys. The black character comes in and is a, he's an immediate asshole. And instead of hating him because he's an asshole, they hate him because he's black. Right. Or I should say John Candy does. Uh, Dan Aykroyd does not. Dan Aykroyd is the leader of this platoon of this troop. And right. And for some reason, he's out of the room when this is happening. Yeah. But yeah I mean, and I thought maybe that was going to be it. It's going to center on these soldiers who are going to have virtually, you know, no experience, but they're going to try to save the West Coast from a Japanese invasion. So you're going to have John Candy, Treat Williams, Dan Aykroyd. That's going to be the core of this group. And that's where the that's where the show's gonna go. And it's gonna be about their experience trying to train these civilians in having to in how to use anti-aircraft guns and shit like that. No. <laughs> no, that's not what happens. No, and whenever you think the movie is gonna go somewhere, it doesn't. So there's this big USO dance. The army and the navy, they get into this huge fight, and Joe Flaherty is the MC. Like during during the fight, he's like, "Hey, maybe next time we can get a couple of Negroes in here and we can do a race riot." I was like, "Oh my god!" Oh god! Oh man! <laughs> and the thing is, you know, Spielberg and Zemeckis have done other movies which are funny, or at least have funny parts in them. To be fair, Spielberg's not really done a successful comedy from beginning to end kind of a thing. There's funny moments in Spielberg movies, except of course for some of them where there can't be any funny ones, like Schindler's List. Later in the movie, John Candy and this black soldier are in a tank together, and they're fighting, and John Candy puts talcum powder all over the black soldier's face, and then part of the tank blows up, and John Candy gets a face full of black dust in his face so now the white so the black soldier is white and the white soldier is black and they're laughing at each other and then john candy realizes that he's black and he's like get it off get it off me get it off like the thought of him being black just melted his brain yeah who's so repulsive to him i yay 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 you can do something like that i mean there was an episode of mash where they had to deal with this racist guy who didn't want any blood from any Negro soldiers. And so, you know, they started putting makeup on him and stuff to make him think that he was turning black because he got the wrong blood transfusion thing. And it was to, there was a lesson in it because it was MASH. I know the episode, yes. Oh, do you? Okay, okay. Yeah. I figured you would, but... I'm a big, I'm a big fan of MASH, so yeah. But in that case, episode. in that case, you know, there was a lesson to be told, and the guy kind of rethinks his life a little bit. Uh, in this movie, no. <laughs> no. It's, it's not a life lesson. It's not a moment of revelation that, you know, in troubling times, we all need each other. No. Nobody right. learns anything. Nobody evolves. And speaking of racism, this is just a really subtle. In the movie, Robert Stack is watching the movie Dumbo, and one of yes. the scenes they pick from Dumbo 
are the is the crow scene, and one right. of them is actually named Jim Crow. Yeah, yeah, um, they're actually doing they're they're Amos and Andy. Yes, they're doing Amos and Andy and Jim Crow. So it's like even when they're watching Dumble, and by the way, never put a movie better than yours in your movie because yeah, the best part right. of this movie because they they show that scene in Dumbo where Dumbo can't reach his mother and his mother is you know she's in jail it's like oh my god i almost cried at that little scene of Dumbo in 1941 that was the best part of the movie and robert stack is like he's tearing up watching this you know and it's like and and does that somehow change robert stack's character does it give him or change a new perspective or somehow move the story along no <laughs> no it doesn't it just happens and yeah you're right dumbo is a much much better movie than 1941 although to be fair i'm pretty sure we have home movies without sound that's better than 1941 but yeah you're right never put a clip of a movie where people are going oh my god that movie is so awesome and what we're watching right now is such a piece of shit. Why can't we be watching this other movie? I, I, so I want to say this. The costumes are great. The, the sets are great. The cars of the time. All of that. It looks like 1941. Right. It, it does have a 1941 feel to it. All of that is fantastic. It looks like the, the cars, the clothing... The buildings, it all looks like 1941. I have no problem with that. The music, the uniforms. John Williams' score is great. I actually have the 1941 uh, album on my wall back there. But that's where it ends. With, and I will say that all the plane shots with Belushi zooming through uh, Hollywood, all of that looked great. I had no problem with that. And the set design on the submarine made it made you feel like small and claustrophobic, like on a submarine. Anything that doesn't have to deal with people is great in this movie. That's right. That's right. Inanimate objects. Inanimate objects in this movie are fantastic. If I have to give this movie anything, because I watched it when I did my first podcast. I hated this movie. People have given it a second look, and a lot of people are saying it's not as bad as it's made out to be. Yeah. So that's How? why I want I wanted to do it again with somebody else to see if it's just me or if this is just a really bad movie. No, it's still really, really bad. And and again, I was, you know, when I was watching Neighbors, and I kind of went in expecting Neighbors not to be so great and stuff, and. I'd never really seen it from beginning to end, just like 1941. I was thinking of ways it could have become a little bit more interesting or if they would have changed this scene a little bit here, that scene a little bit there, made more use of Kathy Moriarty one way or the other. But this one, you just there's so much of it that should have ended up on the cutting room floor. But it's the script. I mean, they didn't have a script. It was almost like, it seems, it really comes across like they were just winging the whole thing here. There's no central plot of anything. They don't ever get the Japanese. The Japanese do eventually succeed. The only group of people who actually get anything done here that's worthwhile are the Japanese submariners. They do take out a Ferris wheel. And so now they can go home. And they're going to go home with John Belushi. Eddie Deason shows up in this movie. 
And if you don't know who he is, he is the standard nerd of any seventies and eighties movie. And he's stuck on a Ferris wheel with the guy with the mayor from Jaws, and he has a ventriloquist dummy. And it's just, it's just so, it's just so stupid. Hello, hello, hello. Scioli doesn't answer. Christ, it's a sub! Look, you guys, a Jap sub! Oh. Holy shit, Herb. The dummy's right. Japs. It's a full-scale invasion. Give me that phone. Yeah, why is he speaking through a ventriloquist dummy? I, I've I, seen that in movies before, but it's just... Okay, I, I think I have an answer as to why they did that. Okay. Soap was on the air. And one of the main characters on Soap could only talk to people through the puppet. And it was really funny. Jay Johnstone. Yeah, yeah, Jake Johnstone. And it was actually funny. That's the only reason I could possibly think they incorporated it here. Is because, hey, you know how Jake Johnstone does with that dummy on Soap? That's really funny. Hey, let's throw that in here. Hey, you know how Tim Matheson's always trying to get laid in Animal House? Let's throw that in here. Hey, remember that really funny scene where Belushi's like grabbing food off the lunch line? Let's throw that in here. Hey, remember Birth of the Nation with all that racism? Let's <laughs> throw that in here. <laughs> I've got a, the biography Belushi written by his wife. So this is a quote by Tim Matheson. It was my first opportunity to see a movie that literally ran unchecked. If you were supposed to do such and such work on this day then there never was a guarantee that's what you do. You'd never get it all done or anywhere near it. You'd sit in your trailer for six to eight hours all night long and never get out on the set. We would do stuff over and over again. The scene where John crashes the plane into Hollywood Boulevard was this enormous stunt. They did it three different times and to no great distinction. At one point, Ackroyd said, these guys are playing bumper cars with Ferraris. They had all this incredibly talented people, and they didn't know what to do with them. They pissed money away on that film, just pissed it away. That's a much better description than we can come up with. <laughs> that, And again, I, I just want to emphasize that, you know, we're talking about how disgusting the ongoing, you know, comedic rape premises and the racism is. And again, we're not coming here as like, you know, 20-year-old millennials or the most you know, woke guys in the world. It, it just was just really freaking awkward by anybody's standards, by any standards whatsoever. I, I've never seen a movie where that was taken as a premise for a, for a comedic premise. Now, here's a quote from Joe Flaherty. Spielberg had no idea how to do comedy. One day he called me into his trailer, showed me a take of that scene we just shot and asked, was that funny? Do you think that was funny? I just stared at the screen and thought, oh, geez, we're in trouble. One of the things, and I discussed this with my daughter, one of the things that for me elevates Indiana Jones above, say, Predator or Alien are the funny moments, you know, how he's afraid of snakes and he gets on the plane and there's a snake where he's asked, you know, what are you going to do next? Indy? What are you going to do next? Indy? 
It's like, I don't know. I'm just making this up as I go along. You know, that, you know, little funny bits. You know, how did he, Spielberg, pull that off? Or, or of course, Back to the Future is a comedy. Robert Zemeckis, the man. How, how did they not make this work? I, I mean, you, you watch the movie, and let's, I'll stay away from the rape and the racism stuff. Okay. How would you describe the plot? What is the plot of the movie? The plot is to stop the Japanese from invading Hollywood. Okay, right. Yeah, yeah. I would say that there's a war panic. It's just days after Pearl Harbor. And people were afraid that the West Coast could be hit, which all of which is, has is a basis in fact. And so then they focus on, you know, Los Angeles. And we meet all of these people who are somehow involved in trying to stop this Japanese from attacking. Robert Stack is in charge. He's the only one who seems to have a level head. And everybody else is crazy. I mean, there's a point where Tim Matheson uh, and his uh, girlfriend are shot at by people that think they might be Japanese, and then they have to, like, give certain code words or some such stuff to prove they're not actually Japanese spies and stuff. But, in fact, the Japanese really are off the coast, and they are looking to make a score, so to speak, and it still doesn't work. <laughs> well, Dan Aykroyd is level-headed. Dan Aykroyd is level-headed until he gets hit in the head, and then he he freaks out. He he has this concussion, so now there's a scene where he has pantyhose over his head, and he has oranges in the pantyhose, and he's just like, I'm a bug! I'm a bug! Once he gets hit in the head, he is useless until the end of the movie. The centerpiece of this movie is there's this giant brawl between soldiers, uh, between army soldiers and navy soldiers, Right. and Dan Aykroyd makes this fantastic heartfelt speech make no mistake about this you can count on this and i know this for a fact the japs do not surrender and they don't take prisoners they have only one idea in mind you know what that is do you know what that is sailor no. to kill that's right to kill you to kill your families yes to kill your families your mothers your loved ones your pets and to keep on killing until they conquer the world and when they do you won't be able to speak your free mind you won't be able to go and worship God in your own way. You won't be able to walk down the main street of your hometown with your best gal on your arm anymore. Look at Santa Claus. Isn't he cute? Do you think the Japanese believe in Santa Claus? Well, instead of turkey for your Christmas dinner, how would you like to have raw fish heads and rice? Do you think the Krauts believe in Walt Disney? Yeah, well, was that Mickey Mouse I saw blitzkrieging across France? No! Pluto in Poland? No! Or Donald Duck at Pearl Harbor? No! This time we free the world or we lose it. This time we win or we die trying. Right, and I thought maybe that was going to be the premise of the movie, because that comes out really early on when, he, when Treat Williams is trying to kill that guy for getting eggs on him. And he's like, yeah, we're all Americans here, and we don't want Americans fighting other Americans. There was, I mean, you certainly see potential with with some of the, you know, characters. You see potential with the Dan Aykroyd character. You see potential with Robert Stack. You know, Belushi, and, and by the way, Aykroyd and Belushi are never in the same scene together. 
They're not. They were not in a scene together in the original theatrical release. They're still not in the scene together in the director's cut. However, at the end of the movie, John Belushi, and I thought this was kind of, I thought this was mildly uh, amusing. She has commandeered a motorcycle and he drives a motorcycle into the ocean and we see him climbing up on this Japanese sub and he's smoking a cigar. So I thought that was funny that he swam, he was in the water, and when he gets out of the water, the cigar is still lit. And yeah, that's how much he likes cigars. But before John Belushi goes down into the submarine, he salutes Dan Aykroyd, and Dan Aykroyd, who was in the water, everybody ends up into the water. I, it's, it's irrelevant how they get there. All <clears throat> the soldiers end up in the water at the end of this movie. Right. Aykroyd salutes Belushi, Belushi salutes Aykroyd, Belushi... <laughs> Jumps into the sub and and says, you know what? Take me to Japan. I guess I'm going to Tokyo or whatever it was. Take me to Tokyo. Yeah. Uh, and again, I didn't ever see the movie. And I just kind of imagined when I saw, would see scenes with, I knew that Belushi was in a plane during the movie. And I figured, well, yeah, it's, it's you know, Dan Aykroyd's going to be his wingman. The two of them are going to be flying around together, right? <laughs> that, you know, one's the pilot, the other guy's the co-pilot sitting behind him and the navigator, and they're going to get into hijinks and maybe shoot the wrong building or shoot the wrong people or drop a bomb on the wrong thing, any of which would have been an improvement, by the way. And no, they're, they're not in it together. Belushi is basically solo in this movie all of his scenes are just him for the most part there's other scenes where he's with robert stack and warren oates briefly but most of the comedy is just him in his plane making faces scratching his balls drinking coca-cola 500 miles an hour up in the up in the wild blue yonder i'm trying to think you saw it much more recently than I have. If you cut Belushi out of that movie, would you really miss anything? No. Which is a shame. It is. It is that you take somebody like John Belushi, you could remove him from that movie. All of the scenes of him flying in the plane, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You wouldn't, you, you know, it wouldn't be a better movie. But I'm just saying it you know, wouldn't change the outcome, wouldn't change the plot. Yeah, it's kind of funny at the end. He ends up inadvertently being captured by the Japanese, uh, who are the only guys here that seem to actually kind of have their shit together. Mm. Although, you know, not completely. But they, you know, they get it done. They shoot down a Ferris wheel and they're able to go home now. I don't know. Maybe it was a statement on Japanese efficiency. Which was also a big thing in the 1970s. One of the reasons to watch this movie is for Belushi because he made so few movies. Mm -hmm. So you don't get to see him a lot. You have so, to see all of James Dean's movies to appreciate James Dean. You can't just see one and not see. You have to see Rebel Without a Cause. You know, you got to see Giant. East of, Eden. Other one, East of Eden. Whenever I see Belushi, it's always a bit bittersweet it because is. i love i love jim belushi jim belushi I, john belushi yep grew up watching him on snl and all those funny sketches and stuff and they were just about to do the blues brothers which right. does effectively bury the bluto character really 
I mean, you could argue that, you know, Jake is kind of a Bluto, but, well, I don't know. Maybe I overstated that. No, I would say that Bluto was out of control. Bluto was out of control. He's kind of out of control here. And the one thing that Belushi is not in the Blues Brothers, Belushi is in control. He's in complete control. Even when Carrie Fisher has an automatic weapon pointed at his head, he is completely cool and in control. So there's that. And we talked about it in our Neighbors podcast. When that movie was originally cast, the roles were switched, and John Belushi was supposed to play the wild, out-of-control one, and he didn't want to do it. He wanted to play the more conservative one. He was was playing the straight man. To Aykroyd, yes. Dan Aykroyd was playing kind of the crazy, goofy guy who steals stuff, like the car, and burns down the house. And and that was one of the things I think we talked about, is how maybe if they'd have done it the other way around, it would have worked a little better. It certainly would have fit into everybody's expectations. One of the things that, and again, I'm not, have never been in that position, is that why, when you establish such a great, oh, what do I want to say? Well, when, when you're known for being a certain kind of a character in the movies, you want to go against that type. You know, it's like Bill Murray doing Razor's Edge after Ghostbusters. And, meatballs you know and it's like no 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 be bill murray you know don't do razor's edge you know do groundhog day you know do rushmore you know don't don't play against type just go with it i mean jack benny stayed with type you know it works for him you know what you know what i really wish jack benny would have done i wish he would have done you know the way we were with barbara streisand or some shit like that you know it's like no 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 he, he established a type, and then he went with it. He wrote it out for the next 60 years. <laughs> you know, you, you don't see Rodney Dangerfield. You, he, Rodney Dangerfield played some relatively serious roles from time to time, but you would never expect to see Rodney Dangerfield in Howard's End, which, by the way, would have made it a much better movie now that I think about it, and it's genius movie quite frankly but I, I i just don't get these guys once they've established a reputation for being really 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 awesome at playing some kind of an archetype you're t- uh, type they don't want to get typecast yeah I, I i know i guess but in but boy you know if that's what gets gets things done maybe i'm completely off maybe i'm wrong on this i think it just depends on the person what's inside of them if they're fine with being who they are time after time, some people True. just want to stretch their wings. I'm going to our we have a good friend named Andy Huggins. Yes. And, and Andy Huggins just loves to do stand-up. He doesn't like to act. He doesn't like to do improv. He doesn't like to do radio. He just does stand-up. And he is extremely happy doing stand-up. There's other people like myself. I like to do stand up. I like to do improv. I like to have, I like to do different things. I, it, to me, it's just all, it's all in the individual, how that individual sees themselves and what that individual wants out of life and wants out of their career. Yeah, I guess, I guess it's just, and of course, Belushi doesn't know that he's going to be dead in a few years. No. You know, Belushi, everybody's figuring, yeah, John Belushi's going to be like the new Jerry Lewis. 
You know, he's going to play, you know, these any characters and, and quite, you know, Continental Divide. He was really good and the movie was a good movie and uh, and that's fine. There's still a little bit of comedy involved there and it doesn't have to involve him being out of control or whatever or on a mission from God conversely. But, you know, nobody sits there. When you think about John Belushi, you don't sit there and go, oh, yeah, Continental Divide. Or he played kind of an average guy who liked this gal who liked to be outside. You know, it's either, you know, Animal House or it's the Blues Brothers. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to say that that's what he's known for. And maybe he just didn't want to be known for that. And, and, and maybe part of it, too, is that because we're not Hollywood. And that might be part of it, too. I mean, look at how often you have good comedies. And they get absolutely snubbed by the Oscars, you know, every time, by the Hollywood community. You know, the last comedy to win an Academy Award for Best Picture was Annie Hall, 1975, I believe it was. You know, that that maybe you get around that circle of people. Well, it's a little bit like, okay, now I understand it a little bit better. When I was a broadcasting major and, you know, was taking extra hours at the uh, college radio station, because I loved it. You know, I loved being a DJ and picking out the music and trying to be a little bit funny here and there, take calls, that kind of a thing. I wasn't like crank Yankers or nothing, but you know, just kind of, kind of winging it and everything like that. Really, really liked it. And then one night I'm getting off my shift and somebody else is coming on and I'm talking about how, you know, wow, this is really pretty cool here, you know, and stuff. And, and she was like, yeah, but you really just want to be a DJ the rest of your life? And I was, like, really taken aback, like, oh, well, maybe I shouldn't want to just be a DJ the rest of my life, I guess. You know, it wasn't exactly a life-changing moment for me or anything. But it was like, you know, no, you're supposed to be better than this. Like, like maybe, oh, yeah, yeah, you do the trashy comedies just fine. But but to really get respect from the people, you really need to do a Continental Divide. You know, you really need to do a Razor's Edge. You know, you really need to, and even Jerry Lewis did, you know, a couple of uh, dramas and stuff here and there, which is what people then point to to say, oh, actually, Jerry Lewis was a tremendous actor, etc. You know, so... Maybe it's because we're not part of that community or surrounded by people like that, that we sit there and go, or at least I do, go, you know, you know, if you're Jack Nicholson, then you play Jack Nicholson. <laughs> what if Jack Nicholson was a gangster? What if Jack Nicholson was an author? What if Jack Nicholson hung around with some, you know, bikers? You know, he's still Jack Nicholson. I, I don't know. Are we even still talking about the movie? Not anymore. Uh, <laughs> no. Well, again, I, I apologize. It's 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 really all I can do is, is apologize <laughs> that we cannot give you a coherent narrative <clears throat> of what the movie no. is like. And the movie's all over the place. And like maybe if they're the old Marx Brothers movies, yeah, 
those there was no plot in those. It was just it just went from bit to bit to bit, but they were funny. And you didn't and, care that there wasn't a plot. This movie and in the end, and in the end, somehow the Marx brothers, which were the good guys, come out on top for the most part, at least not seriously harmed, and the bad people get their comeuppance. You know, through through anarchy comes order, through chaos comes order, kind of a thing. Now, I wanted to contrast this, and uh, I was going to talk about it earlier and maybe edit it in at some point. When my daughter and I were doing the research, looking at similar movies that came out about the same time, the premise here is there are some movies that are really bad, like 1941, that you go and you watch, and it's a complete waste of time, and it's not enjoyable in any way, and it's just horrible. And then there are some movies that are very, very bad, but they're bad in a way that they're still entertaining and fun to watch. For example, same year that 1941 came out, there is this movie called Pause, P period, A period, W period, S. Just to be clear, the movie is actually called Chomps. And this one, I can tell you the plot and the whole bit. Valerie Bertinelli is in there, and the guy who played the old rich white guy on the different strokes was in there. And what happens is <clears throat> there's this company and there is a security company, and, but somebody on the inside has been like giving out the security codes to these burglars. And these burglars keep breaking into these homes all over. I, I think it's Los Angeles. I don't know. doesn't matter. And so this guy has this brilliant young man, who has come up with a brand new security device because everybody knows the best security in your house is a dog. Well, he comes up with a dog that is basically a cybernetic organism. It's a cyber dog. Okay. It's a robot dog. Okay. P-A-W-S. And Valerie Bertinelli is the daughter of the owner of the company and she's dating the brilliant whiz kids kid guy. And at some point he gets fired uh, but then he's able to save himself by showing the boss that he has invented this dog that is a robotic dog. And, of course, what they do is they have a, the dog. It's just a regular dog. But then in order to replace his batteries and stuff, you have to twist his head off and pull it off. And this is a kid's movie. <laughs> And at some point, you had to have known some kids were screaming when he's, like, wrestling the head off. <laughs> and then it shows the electronics on the inside of this dog. So it's like, oh, it's okay. It's okay. It's not a real dog. It's a robotic dog. And then the robotic dog has an enemy dog that lives in the neighborhood that doesn't know it's a robot. You can hear his thoughts, by the way. This other dog that is the nemesis dog. You can hear his thoughts. Now, he is the only character in the entire movie of all the people and all the dogs who you can actually hear his thoughts as they're taking place. And anyway, what happens is people try to steal the dog. These two guys, including Red Buttons and another guy, are these two really inept burglars that nobody would hire to begin with that try to steal the dog. They're unsuccessful at stealing the dog because, as it turns out, 
everything is programmed into the dog. The dog knows how to operate forklifts and assembly lines and all sorts of stuff is in his programming. And what really makes it both horrible and laughable is to activate the dog, you had to say like code 49 or code 42 or some shit like that, that every little function had a code for it. And it was always the same code. And it was just like the $6 million man that there would be some magical music as the robotics kick in. And then this they would play this triumphant music as the dog robotic dog goes to save the day. And it's a horrible, horrible, horrible movie. And I would watch it tonight <laughs> again because it is so bad. It's hilarious. So if you want to see a movie that is just God awful and funny as hell, then I would recommend pause chomps, which came out about the same time, that same, you know, Christmas time of 79 or 80 or whatever it was. But that's a bad movie that is just horrifically bad. Oh, and then the last scene, and this is a kid's movie, right? The very, very last scene of the movie, something bad happens to the nemesis dog. Like the robotic dog breaks his doghouse. And the nemesis dog goes, oh, shit. <laughs> and that's it. The movie ends. <laughs> it's like, this is obviously a kid's movie. The last thing the nemesis dog says is, oh, shit. And maybe that they were looking for a PG rating. I don't know. Going for a PG rating, back to the movie that we're talking about, 1941. Yes. There is a scene where there's this anarchy in the street, and this one, there's a tank that's going out of control. Its turret is it's just rotating around and around and around. Right. And you see this one soldier clearly go, oh, fuck. But you don't hear it. You can see his lips move, and you can definitely see his lips say, oh, fuck. So I'm guessing they took that out to get a PG, because this was before PG-13. Right. If you continue that scene, the turret goes through a Mexican or an Italian restaurant, and John Belushi, as a different character, is sitting eating spaghetti, and he's on the screen for like three seconds. And I didn't understand why would... That just made no sense to me. Why would you have John Belushi playing a secondary character that's on screen, unless the scene was cut, unless it was longer, but the scene was cut. He's on the screen for three seconds. I swear. I missed that. Maybe, again, it's because we watched the director's cut. Maybe that little bit got cut out of the original movie. Maybe he was supposed to have so many minutes of screen time. And that was one of the ways of getting it there. I, 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 I don't know. There's, like I said, 1941, there is nothing funny. There is nothing redeemable about it. You can't, like I said before, you can't just think, well, you know, let's take the plot and tweak it. No. No, no. there's nothing to tweak. It's like you said, burn it down. Before I forget, because I'm old and this stuff happens. Uh, Dan Aykroyd says something at the end of the movie that just sent chills down my spine. That he's talking to Robert Stack 
And he goes, you know, I think 1942 is going to be an even, you know, better year. And I was thinking that that was kind of a hint that they were thinking about making a sequel. Well, I don't know. This was this was before the time of sequels. Was this it? Was no. Yeah, I believe. Well, yeah, I I would think so. Or it was the start of sequels. It wasn't as today where just every movie gets a sequel. I think because Jaws did much better, didn't get a sequel. Close Encounters didn't get a sequel. You know, that's a good topic, by the way. Um, Our great one-off movies. Movies that there was just a movie. What am I saying? Jaws got four fucking sequels. What yeah, the yeah, fuck am I talking about? about? Yeah, I was going to say <laughs> Jaws. I mean, they, they make fun of it in, in Back to the Future. They've got like Jaws yeah. before or whatever it is. Yeah, Jaws got plenty of sequels. They were. I don't like, know. Horrible. Okay, I I must I blanked out. Yeah, each one, one got the- progressively worse. Then you had Star Wars, and they're working on Empire Strikes Back. You know, I think, but that was meant to be a trilogy. I think Jaws. Oh, was meant understood. To be one yeah. yeah, and and that's one of those under underappreciated things about Star Wars is, in some ways, that kind of starts the whole idea franchise idea. You know. But if you want a really, we were talking about bad, good movies, Jaws for the Revenge, starring Lauren Gray, who's in this movie, that's one of the best bad movies ever, where a shark from the Jaws family is hunting the Brody family. Yeah, yeah, somehow the shark understands who's responsible for the death of Grandpa. Yeah. Uh, and speaking of, uh, and we ne- we haven't touched on it, Lauren Gray yeah. and Ned Beatty are in this movie. They're a married couple, and yes. their house is strategically placed where Dan Aykroyd and his troop, and by the way, just to mention, one of the soldiers in Dan Aykroyd's troop is Mickey Rourke. This was his first movie. If you oh. look closely enough at the end, you can see Mickey Rourke standing around with the other soldiers. So Ned Beatty has this howitzer this massive gun at his house he's put in charge of the gun he sees the sub he goes to shoot the sub and he he destroys his own house he basically shoots his own house up trying to destroy the sub and we were talking about the guy who played in heart to heart this character actor he had a couple of funny lines um yes where the turret of the gun is clearly focused on his house. Yeah. But he thinks it's focused on the submarine and he got and he goes, uh, I don't think you're gonna hit it. So it was the subtle humor. It was he said a couple of subtle, funny lines that just okay, that made me laugh. Not the over-the-top bullshit that was through this movie, but right. just the subtle. He shoots the gun. It drives him back 500 feet. And Ned Beatty goes, did I get him? And he goes, no. And he goes, well, come on. Push me out. Let's do it again. And he's smoking a pipe. And he just takes a couple of puffs of his pipe and goes, okay. And goes, okay, that's funny. <laughs> that's subtle and that's funny. And bam. But it's totally wasted in this movie. And never, ever... Under any circumstances, should you disperse them? Never, ever, under any circumstances. Foot trigger! 
You think, well, maybe they're trying to say something about the uh, uselessness of war by, you know, Ned Beatty destroying his own house to try to get to a Navy sub, you know, to whatever. But no, no, that's that's not that's there's no lesson to be learned there. The house was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. It's not like I said. Nobody learns anything. Not even Robert Stack. Robert Stack still at the end doesn't really believe that the Japanese are a threat, even after they've blown apart a Ferris wheel. So he doesn't change. John Candy doesn't change. And no, but there's no arc. Nobody has an arc in this movie. Everybody is the same at the beginning of the movie as they are at the end of the movie. Nobody, nobody has learned anything. Nobody has gained any knowledge. Nobody has looked inside themselves to see what kind of person they are. Nope. Nope. Nobody's better off. A lot of people are quite a bit worse off. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. Poor Treat Williams. He ends up with the gal he doesn't want, it seems. Yeah. Yeah, that's his punishment. He has to have sex with a different woman who wants to have sex with him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's 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 a good point. That's his punishment, is that he actually has to have a less attractive woman. Ay, yay, yay. All right. Yeah. So yeah. So this this was 1941, and yeah. obviously, if you've listened to this podcast, you know neither one of us are a fan. I don't think I could we watch almost, it again. You know, we almost need to. Have somebody who is who could explain it to us, you know. That now nah, that would be painful. That really would be. It'd be like, no, nah, it just, you know, because you know, somewhere out there, somebody's like, oh yeah, nineteen forty-one, that was great. Yeah, well, and what was the part that was great? You know, it's weird. Yeah. Somebody like, yeah, somebody out there, nineteen forty-one is their favorite movie, and yeah, they've got it on Blu-ray. And right now, they're burying somebody in their basement. <laughs> for, I, for not liking 19, you didn't like 1941 why don't you step downstairs I got something I want to show you it, it's, it's not like it was underappreciated somehow or like oh this is a movie that was just ahead of its time no no. Okay, well it, it would have done well in a different era no 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 it was just a, a confluence of all, all you can think of that is like in the universe there's all these Random numbers that come up and back and forth and such. The the only thing, and, and it's not nearly as long, that's almost as bad as 1941, is the theme song to Star Trek Enterprise. <laughs> Which is just a horrible, horrible song. You know, but anyway, it's just trying to be funny. Uh, uh, yeah, all right. Yeah, well, Star Trek, the original motion picture, that's way too long. Um, oh, God. You just don't know. Yeah, guess. actually, that was, 19, yeah, so that was a year after this, 1980. So yeah. that that movie was, 
I would say just if you go to YouTube and look up the John Belushi clips from 1941, if you want to reminisce about John Belushi. Right, but right, there's, right. there's nothing redeeming about this movie. There's nothing. And you can't even, some movies you can learn from. Like, learn what not, I guess you could learn what not to do. You know, exactly. Now, there you go. That's exactly right. That is, you learn how not to make a film like this. That if I was a teacher at a film school somewhere, you know, this might not be the first movie that I would show, but it would be amongst the first movies I would show. You would like show this movie and you would show a mad, 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 mad world. And then you talk about why this one works and why this one does not work. Uh, kind of thing. You know, I'm really not a mad, 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 mad world. Isn't really my favorite movie of all time. It's not even on my top 20 list, but I keep mentioning it in these podcasts. <laughs> it keeps coming up. It's an okay movie. I have the movie on DVD. It's an okay movie, like you yeah, said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's amusing enough. It's stuff that's on TV, you know, and nothing else is going on. I'll watch it. It used right. to be on TV quite a bit. Yeah, it, it's okay. And there's dumb parts in it and, as well and stuff. But overall, it, it actually works. But, my God, 1941 is just, thank God there was not a 1942. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Yeah, having a movie for each year of the war. Oh, man. Oh. <laughs> Shit, I know. It, this is the part. Having, you know, fun and games at Iwo Jima, you know? It's, ay, 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 When And, you know, Jodie Foster once said that the 1975 to 1995 era was, as far as she was concerned, Hollywood's golden era. And then I thought, really? <laughs> 1975 to 1995 was the golden era because I saw a lot of trash between 1975 and I, there's always a lot of trash. There's always a lot of trash there. I mean, from whatever. But what, think, really makes, think, what really makes 1941 stick out as is trash, but so much so that it gets two podcasts from you, not just one is because of the people involved. The stars I, on the screen, the the directors, Zemeckis, Spielberg, guys who made iconic films that will live for freaking ever. You know, and, and I generally like Spielberg films. I even like the Spielberg films with Tom Hanks that don't get very good ratings and quite frankly aren't really, really very good ones like where Tom Hanks plays an American spy in Berlin and that kind of a thing. That was okay. You know, it was okay with me uh, and stuff. So, and it just, but I guess, I guess Spielberg just doesn't know funny. And that, and it makes you wonder about somebody without a, a sense of, of humor, but there were so many people involved in the thing who were just naturally Funny people. I remember Jim Belushi came to the University of Nebraska one time just to do a few bits and talk to the audience. And he said that John Candy, who's still alive at the time, was just the, the funniest person he had ever met in person, on screen, off screen, you know, any time. You know, he was just 
you know, a tremendously, you know, talented and, and just naturally funny guy who never even had to try. You would think if you're a director, you're going to go there to these guys, you know, like, I, and these guys were writers too. I mean, when John Candy was on Second City Television, he he was a, a contributor. So was Belushi. So was Ackroyd. The, uh, you, you know, the National Lampoon White Album and stuff like that, that they were, they were creatives as well as on-screen uh, talent that you would have tapped into that somehow and said, okay, if nothing else, let's make this a Saturday Night Live sketch, you know, and try to make it work that way. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's It's like, I don't know. Apocalypse Now was out about that time, too. <laughs> All right, so we had two big thumbs down for 1941. Yeah, uh, I think we've beaten the subject to death because we, we're just sitting here pondering. All we can keep saying is the same same thing. It's just terrible, and and there's nothing redeemable about it, and we have no idea how people who have such a great, fantastic track record just did this one. I did see, I used to bowl a lot, and... I do remember one night that uh, this guy, it, it's relevant, you know, he shot 11 in a row. He was going for a 300 game, perfect game. The 12th ball went off his ankle and right into the gutter all the way down. Didn't even get close. <laughs> and that's kind of what 1941 is. You know, you got Spielberg and Zemeckis and they're rolling, you know, they're rolling you know, two nineties all over the place. And this one just went off the ankle right into the gutter. At least when it happened to me, I stuck a seven pin and ended up at two ninety nine. But I hit the pocket. That was I was going up there for the last throw thinking, okay, <laughs> don't let this go in the gutter like so and so did a couple of years ago. At least hit the pocket. And man, I hit the pocket and I stuck a seven. This isn't Spielberg and Zemeckis hitting the pocket and sticking to seven. This is Spielberg and Zemeckis knocking it off their ankle, and it goes 58 feet in the gutter all the way down. You know, like, man, yeah. I choke on that one. Some movies you can say, well, it started good and it ended bad, or it started bad and it ended good. This movie was just bad from start to finish. There was no yeah, yeah, peaks. Now, if you want to play a cruel joke on somebody, what you do is you tell them, oh, yeah, 1941, man, you got to watch it. Now, the first two hours sucks, but it's really the last 30 minutes that really brings it all together. You ever see, like, Little Miss Sunshine? Little Miss Sunshine is kind of a downer movie, and it's okay, and it's at least, you know, well done and stuff. But it's at the end when she does the strip tease at the uh, kids' pageant that really makes the movie, elevates the movie. That's what goes on in 1941. If you hate somebody, and I mean really hate somebody, and, and they've done something terrible to you, like they shot your dog and then they reloaded and shot your dog again or some shit like that. You tell you watch 1941, but you stick it out, man. You keep watching it. And then... I swear, two hours and 12 minutes into the movie, the whole thing is going to come together. It's going to redeem itself. 
and you're going to be so glad that you invested your time in watching it. And then they will want to fucking kill you. They, you, you, you will be on the top, their top shit list for the rest of their lives. Or they won't. They'll go. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I saw that. I, I see what you're talking about. <laughs> that is, you know, great revenge. All right. This has been another episode of the Dan Aykroyd podcast. I want to say thank my guest Tim Howard. Thank you for doing this. Thank uh, I, I I really appreciate you doing it because yes, this was a slog. This was a two and a half hour movie that we both had to sit through. Thank you for doing this, and we'll yeah, see everybody here. We'll have to talk about a good movie. We will talk about something good next time. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. and the next time everybody's here, we will talk about that good thing right here on the Dan Aykroyd podcast. Adios! Thanks so much. To support this podcast, please go to www.patreon.com slash Scott White and give what you're able. If you're listening on iTunes, please give a review. That should help people find this podcast. And no matter what services you use to listen, please leave feedback. We always want to improve. Thank you for listening to the Dan Aykroyd Podcast. Turn this cover around. You're taking me to Tokyo. Anybody got a light? Cross the streams. This has been a Cross the Streams Media Podcast. I think the really big year is going to be 1942. It's going to be a long war.